0: Thank you for joining us for
1: another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Commonwealth Club Marine Conversation Series. I'm Bruce Robbie. I'm on the Board of Governors with the club, and I'm also the president of Relevant Wealth Advisors here in Mill Valley, and my company is the sponsor of the Marin Conversation Series. So, uh, we've got an exciting topic tonight. I'm guessing most of you know what we're going to talk about. So I want to welcome our guests this evening. We have Kate Kelly and Robin Pogerbin, who've written a fascinating book. And in conversation today, we have Rose Aguilar, who's here from radio station KALW. She has a show every single day, 10 to 11. If you haven't listened to it, check it out, 91.7 FM. So on that note, I'll get off the stage. Thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you very much.
2: Testing, testing. Good evening. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club's Marin Conversation Series here in Mill Valley, California. As Bruce mentioned, my name is Rose Aguilar and I host a daily radio show on KALW from 10 to 11 AM, 91.7. We focus on everything from social issues and politics to the environment and the arts when we need a break from the politics and I'm really pleased to be joined tonight by two New York Times reporters, Kate Kelly and Robin Pogrebin. Nearly a year ago, Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court after a very heated set of hearings. Robin and Kate were two of the journalists who covered the hearings for the paper, and they broke many stories during the process. Their new book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, tells the story starting back in the 1980s, and the book is for sale in the back of the room. The book has already made a lot of news when it was released last week, and we're pleased to have Kate and Robin here tonight in Marin County. We will have a conversation for about 50 minutes, and then we have 15 minutes for a Q&A. Welcome, Kate and Robin. Thank you. Thank you. Well, before we dive in and talk about your book, I just want to ask you if you have any comments, given the news that we got today, that Nancy Pelosi now supports impeachment
0: proceedings. (laughs) I mean, I think what's interesting about it is that obviously this has been in the wind for a long time, and there have been a number of Democrats who've been kind of Asking uh, Nancy Pelosi to make this move, and she has sort of steadfastly resisted it because she sort of felt like there wasn't kind of the critical mass of support in the rest of the country. And I think that this particular allegation um, and, and this incident involving President Trump, she feels is clear cut enough that actually it sort of forced her hand. And so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, um, whether or not Republicans actually um, kind of get lend their support to this, or if they fall in line behind. President Trump, it's going to be an interesting chapter.
3: And, and, and just to bring this actually back to the topic of the evening, I mean, I think when it comes to re-election, which seems to be uppermost in the president's mind these days, um, what he's done with the Supreme Court and the state of the economy are two of the key issues that he likes to flag. So um, it's very interesting to see that he himself uh, is cornered at the moment, although it isn't clear whether the political will is there to really carry this through. In fact, it's it's probably dubious, but an interesting moment to be sure. <laughs> and um, electability and re-electability was kind of an unseen factor in the issues that we're gonna talk about as well.
2: Right. So just to give a little bit of background about the two of you, you were both pulled off of your regular beats to join the team covering Kavanaugh's confirmation. Robin, you were covering culture. Kate, you were covering business. And after the confirmation, you moved on to other stories, but like so many people in the country, you thought about the leads that were never explored and the many questions that remain unanswered. What were the top questions on your mind that you wanted to answer?
3: Well, I think to be specific, we wanted to know what had happened between Brett Kavanaugh and these women who had made these allegations, what specifically happened and what happened afterwards. And more broadly, we wanted to know who is he? You know, what kind of a person was he at the time? Is he as an adult, as a professional? What were the influences in his life that led him to want to become a lawyer, for instance, and ultimately a judge? But also, what were his dealings with other people, both men and women, and what kind of informed these situations that became so painful and so public a year ago?
0: But we also wanted to look at this FBI investigation, which people felt was ultimately very unsatisfying on many levels. People questioned, you know, whether it was conducted in good faith, you know, how many people were interviewed. Um, Who directed it? I think there were a lot of questions surrounding that. But also there were just questions of our time that were, you know, sort of uh, much sort of larger, sort of more existential questions about is it possible to have a fair process in confirming a judge these days given how politically polarized our country has become? Um, it has the Me Too movement advanced um, our culture in a way that's made us more sensitive in terms of how we handle allegations from women of sexual misconduct? Has it gone too far, as some people allege, in terms of making it impossible um, for men to necessarily be kind of have a fair hearing? So it just it seemed like this, you know, this kind of juncture of so many different strains coming together that were that certainly merited further exploration.
2: So over the course of 10 months, you read thousands of pages of media accounts and public documents. You studied high school and college writings from Kavanaugh from the 80s. You watched videos of his speeches. You conducted hundreds of interviews. I mean, the detail is really interesting. You did speak with Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, Deborah Ramirez, briefly to Mark Judge, Now, Brett Kavanaugh declined to be interviewed, and some stories have been written about what you revealed at the press club in New York. Can you talk about what happened when you were in the process of possibly interviewing Kavanaugh?
3: Yes. Uh, So we kept Justice Kavanaugh apprised all along of kind of what we were working on and our desire, our strong desire to have him on the record in our book. Um, and to help uh, inform the book. Um, We did that directly. We did that through intermediaries. And our sense was that he was very reluctant and was probably not going to talk with us at all. Toward the very end of the process, uh, a meeting was arranged um, and we were really looking forward to hearing his point of view and also running some questions by him because we obviously had a lot. Um, and essentially, the interview fell apart over ground rules. We just could not agree on ground rules. And essentially, our first choice was to have him on the record. And if not that, at least uh, on background, if you will, like sort of usable information information. Um, but it it was important for him that, that we say in the book that he declined to be interviewed we felt we couldn't say that if there was any sort of an interview, no matter what the ground rules off the record or otherwise. So, so he
2: asked you that even if you were to interview him in the book, he wanted you to say he
0: declined to be interviewed. That's right.
2: How often does that happen?
0: I mean, generally, we, we are both beat reporters, and so there are often arrangements that you make that are sort of within um, the realm of normal, where there's off-the-record and there's background, and you're often talking to sources, and they inform your reporting. Sometimes they give you a fact that you have to confirm elsewhere – Sometimes it is possible to come up with attribution where you're saying somebody who, you know, was, you know, party to the negotiation, for example. We did kind of try some of these phrases with him. Um, What was particularly different about this case was that this book uh, is about him. And so we felt that if we talked to him, to say we hadn't talked to him would be misleading.
2: (laughs) You interviewed so many people in his life who talked about his heavy drinking, who talked about his views of women, uh, which were very negative in many ways. What really struck you the most and what, what new information came out based on the interviews you did with people who knew him when he was younger?
0: I mean, one of the things that, that came to my mind, um, it is just this comment that unfortunately we couldn't put a name to this person. He was, I, I actually went to college with Brett Kavanaugh, which is how I was initially drawn into this. I was in his class at Yale. So this was a classmate who just remembers standing at the keg next to him and, um, overhearing the kind of disparaging comments he was making about women. So it was this just very casual but very distinct memory. Um, that I thought was actually quite telling, because um, it wasn 't as if um, this guy was doing things that were so obviously egregious it 's just that this classmate remembered thinking, Wow, his mother wouldn 't be proud." Of uh, hearing him say those things, um, and I think that that is also borne out from, frankly, some of the stuff we found in high school, which was uh, kind of a culture of what one uh, source said to Kate was kind of a, a, an atmosphere of a casual misogyny, that you know may have been endemic to, let's say, that period of time. But I'm, I'm sure you know, obviously, it still persists today in, in various ways. There was certainly much less sensitivity around hearing it, so I think it was a little more sanctioned. Um, um and he also did go into an all boys school and i think sometimes that can can you know feeds that sort of lack of sensitivity um so that was sort of an interesting through line i don't know okay if you'd add
3: yeah. I mean, I think on the high school years, we, we found this portrait emerging of a, a young man who had two sides to him, who did well in school, was at or near the top of his class for much of his time at Georgetown Prep. Even in middle school, he got this thing called the Headmaster's Award as a seventh grader, um, which made eighth grade totally free of charge. And that had to do with academics and strength of character. So he was like a top of the class kind of a student all along. He was... ...was a double varsity athlete and, you know, popular and and considered to be sort of one of the alpha dogs. But at the same time, he had this side to him that could be very mocking and mean uh, when he was trying to impress his friends... Or when he was under the influence of alcohol. Apparently it really changed his personality. So there you see some of the elements that we write about, um, including the Renata yearbook references, were which were essentially the sort of shaming of a woman who was in the broader social circle um, of Kavanaugh and his friends in high school, um, as well as you know, just picking on younger students or more petite students or things like that. And and from what we've heard and, and read, he wasn't necessarily the instigator of these things, but he was often a bystander and a participant.
2: I've watched a lot of interviews that you've done, especially on television. And so many of them are all about the op-ed that ran in the New York times and what was missing from that. And then that tweet that went out and we can talk about that later, but I think because there's so much focus on that, a lot of the information in the book has been ignored or missed in a lot of these interviews. And I, in terms of who Kavanaugh is as a judge, I think deserves more attention. You write that when Merrick Garland was nominated by Barack Obama, Brett Kavanaugh said he was supremely qualified by the objective characteristics of experience, temperament, writing ability, scholarly ability for the Supreme Court. He described Merrick Garland as a role model and had voted with him 93% of the time while they were on the D.C. Circuit together. And that was one of the reasons why many Republicans said that Kavanaugh wasn't conservative enough.
3: You know, one of the questions we were hoping to ask him and that we never really got a satisfactory answer to from people who know him is, how did he feel watching his boss at the time be denied a hearing? throughout 2016. That had to be painful for Kavanaugh, who- Describe what you mean by boss, because Merrick- Sorry, that Merrick Garland being the chief judge on the D.C. Circuit in Washington, and uh, Kavanaugh during that time was a judge on that circuit. So by all accounts, he really respected Judge Garland. They were close colleagues. Um, and Kavanaugh is known these days for being a very collegial and sort of affable professional. Um, so- uh, it seems likely to us that he felt very personally affected and and saddened for his colleague, but at the same time, um, he's a political animal and he and he's been very uh, loyal to the Republican Party over the years. And he probably saw what uh, Majority Leader McConnell was trying to do by saying, "We're not going to fill this Scalia seat. We're not going to give Judge Garland a hearing, even though he's a great guy, and uh, we're going to let the American people decide on this via the election that is happening in." At the time, I think it was 11 months or 10 months from, from when Justice Scalia died. So you could imagine how he felt, but we don't know for sure.
2: What else do you think we need to know about Kavanaugh that got missed in all of the hearings? He helped represent George W. Bush after the Florida recount in 2000, and then he joined the White House Counsel's Office in 2001. In 2003, he became assistant to the president, so he traveled all over the world with George W. Bush on Air Force One and worked very closely with him in the West Wing.
0: Yeah, I mean, George Bush is someone that Kavanaugh very openly admires. He's a real role model for him. He talks about how George Bush talks about the importance of living on the sunrise side of the mountain, um, meaning be an optimist. And that that has kind of informed his worldview. Um, I, I think there was also an interesting uh, sort of a sense of his evolution as uh, as a political animal. That um, people in college talk about the fact that they didn't really even know his politics. He wasn't outspoken. He didn't join political groups. You know, it was a political time on campus that we were. Pro- people were protesting apartheid, for example. He, he quietly joined the Federalist Society and kind of kept that to himself yeah, in he, law he, school. He right? joined that in, only in law school. He wasn't the kind of guy who like, raised his hand and um, really sort of made a, any kind of strong impression on people, which was really interesting. So he was sort of an everyman. And in, in that sense, he seemed to be maybe, in retrospect, strategically making sure to offend no one as he sort of evolved into sort of a, a someone who could ultimately be considered a candidate for the court. Um, but he also worked for Kenneth Starr. And while that was a hugely partisan fight in terms of the Monica Lewinsky battle, and uh, Judge Kavanaugh is credited with having written the questions for Bill Clinton uh, that were incredibly explicit sexual questions about his conduct with Monica Lewinsky. At the same time, we also learned he didn't want that the Star report to be made public. He was concerned that this stuff was too salacious and not for everybody's eyes. Starr released it nevertheless, but it, it does sort of temper your image of, of kind of a zealot who was just kind of looking to publicly humiliate Bill Clinton.
2: You report that during his 12 years on the DC circuit, he was an establishment conservative for the most part on issues like the Second Amendment, campaign finance, and separation of powers. A lot of people were wondering where he stands on abortion, given that Roe v. Wade is just, who knows what's going to happen with that in the next couple years. And I thought this was really interesting in the book. You write about what happened in October 2017 when Kavanaugh dissented from a decision in the case Garza versus Hargan, that allowed an undocumented 17 year old in federal custody to obtain an abortion. And Kavanaugh wrote that the ruling was based on a constitutional principle, as novel as it is wrong a new right for unlawful immigrant minors in the US government detention to obtain immediate abortion on demand.
3: Right. So you raised the question of Roe versus Wade, which I think is top of mind for many people in thinking about the Supreme Court right now and the fact that you now have arguably a pretty strong conservative block, and even the possibility of another seat coming open within the next year or two. Um, So the the Garza case that you just mentioned effectively um, dealt with the issue of whether this teenager could obtain an abortion. Um, She had met the qualifications to need to do so legally in Texas. And in short, what Judge Kavanaugh did was uh, put some additional restrictions or argue for some additional restrictions to be put on her ability to obtain that abortion that would have taken more time and her pregnancy was progressing. So it took on some urgency. Um, the other thing that's happened since he's joined the Supreme Court on this front is that he, um, defended a Louisiana regulation that would have effectively, uh, effectively closed all but one of the abortion clinics in Louisiana. Um, it dealt with doctors who provide abortions, uh, obtaining certain medical privileges that, that essentially raised more hurdles, um, for them being able to take care of patients who were seeking abortions. Um, And that case, June Medical versus Guy, um, has really troubled a lot of people who are concerned about choice. You quote Akhil Reed Amar, a Yale law professor in the book, and he said that
2: the Garza case was seen by everybody as Kavanaugh's audition. He did not have an abortion case, and if you don't have an abortion case, you won't be in the club.
0: If you want to be a judge, you have to pick a lane, and he picked his lane. I love that line, um, because I just thought it really speaks to this sort of inside the, you know, the beltway, what it takes to actually s- sort of have the bona fides to be considered by a Republican president, um, for the court, and that, uh, Kavanaugh's no dummy. He knew kind of these various, uh, sort of boxes he needed to check, and this was one of them. Um, he also, I think, disappointed the uh, the right in terms of his Obamacare decision, which was somewhat nuanced. Um, so, you know, he wasn't the sort of right-wing ideologue that I think they would have preferred in many ways. But on the other hand, he did sort of pass the test, ultimately, and he knew how to do that. He also had this history of being in Washington and working for two administrations of George Bush. You know, you, it really speaks to the network in terms of, um, you know, one of the reviews of our book talked about how he has clearly had a hand up all along the way. And, and you know, it's just so much about the connections you make every step of the way. And, and he clearly made the right ones.
2: Let's talk about Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. As you report, she never told anyone about what happened to her. And I was surprised to learn that she even thought about contacting Kavanaugh directly to have a conversation about what had happened. Because behind the scenes, you just don't know. A lot of people thought, well, she contacted the senators, she wanted to testify, and that was the story. But there was so much going on behind the scenes.
3: There was so much more that preceded that. And I think, in, in a way, that was probably the last thing she imagined doing or wanted to do. Um, yeah. I mean, early on, uh, when Justice Kennedy announced his retirement and Judge Kavanaugh made the short list of possible successors to Justice Kennedy, she was actively debating with friends um, I have this information. Should I bring it forward? I feel compelled to bring it forward, but how do I do that while maintaining my privacy? She was on the beach in Santa Cruz um, as she is most summers, and her kids do a junior lifeguard camp. And she, some people may not know, is an avid surfer. Um, I think that may be her, her biggest love uh from what I've heard other than you know being with family and teaching. Um so she was debating this and one scenario that she imagined was contacting Judge Kavanaugh and saying words to the effect of, let's not do this. Saying, I have a memory to share, here's what it is, let's not do this. And you know it it was apparently sort of a passing thought and she didn't do it but she had imagined either messaging him and trying to i guess arrange a phone call or have an email exchange or if that didn't succeed maybe asking his friend Mark Judge his high school friend, uh, who's now, a, like, a, a writer, um, and a videographer in the D.C. area, asking Judge to contact Kavanaugh and try to, to have that conversation. Um, it was never clear to me where she thought it would go from there. Um, if, if she thought he would remember it or would not, if she thought that he would apologize, and if the intention was to say, I will go public with this if you don't acknowledge it or we can't address it now. Um, I don't know that there was any expectation that he would withdraw his name or not, but it, it was a pretty interesting idea.
2: And you can read more of the details in the book, but Dr. Ford contacted Congresswoman Anna Eshoo's office and ended up meeting with her. And then Congresswoman Eshoo contacted Senator Feinstein and Dr. Ford spoke with Feinstein the next day. Dr. Ford was very adamant that she did not want to go public
0: yes I mean I think uh, when in interviewing representative Eshoo um, it was interesting to have her say to me that she was very struck by Christine Blasey Ford's story very moved by it But she was also struck by Blasey Ford's naivete in in going into this whole situation, that somehow this woman imagined she could just bring this information to these um, kind of elected officials and kind of go back to her life. And that somehow this wouldn't kind of explode. And there was clearly no turning back, ultimately. Um, But. She had already called the tip line of the Washington Post when she met with uh, Representative Eschew, and that surprised um, the congresswoman because she was like, you know, how are you expecting this won't leak if you've actually called a reporter and you're meeting with me? Um, But, you know, even though Christine Blasey Ford is from the D.C. area, I think there really was some sense that she didn't completely absorb and appreciate what she was in for.
3: I'm also glad you're you're bringing up uh, this moment in the story, because I think the way in which the process evolved and did not go at all the way Dr. Ford wanted or expected is key to understanding this story and sort of how we got to where we are tonight or where we were a year ago. Um, she was hoping to pass on this information to the relevant decision makers, in this case, President Trump and possibly officials in the Senate very early, late, late June or early July before Judge Kavanaugh was actually named so that if people found it disqualifying, he could be replaced before it became a huge thing. And the fact is that um, Representative Eschew's office did not get back to her terribly quickly. The Washington Post anonymous tip line, which she has also contacted, not, did not get back to her terribly quickly. And by the time they did, he had already been nominated and the wheels were in motion.
2: Her story was eventually leaked, and Feinstein's office acknowledged the letter that Dr. Ford wrote on September 13th, and she knew that her name would eventually become public, so she decided to talk to the Washington Post, and that piece was published on September 16th. And the death threats happened almost immediately. Her family was forced to relocate. What was it like for you to talk to her again about this whole process.
3: Um It was hard. It was hard because um, she's been through a lot. Um, and, you know, she makes this allegation of something from 1982 that itself is incredibly painful. It's clearly painful for her to remember it and talk about it. And then she has this horrific experience last year where her safety and security and her credibility are threatened. And her family members are threatened. And her friends and extended family are are bothered by you know a range of people including journalists um so it's it's very hard for her to talk about it i i think um my sense was that she had sort of mixed emotions i mean she really wants the historical record to be accurate she's very fact oriented and st- statistically oriented and i that's part of her work um So she really wants to make sure that things are accurate and correct and that she plays a role in making sure that happens. On the other hand, I think it's very painful for her to talk about all of this. And um, it it went in a direction that I think she never could have anticipated. Um, and, And it has changed her life.
2: So many of us were wondering when and if she was going to testify, and you have an interesting part in the book about how she and a very close group of friends flew to Washington, D.C., and even they didn't really know what was going to happen.
3: Yeah, that, to me, was one of the interesting revelations um that that we came across in our reporting. And I should say, you know, I sort of handled the Georgetown Prep High School material, including talking with Dr. Ford and piecing together her story. And Robin handled the Yale and college and, and law school aspects. And... Uh, obviously, the story about Ramirez and and the third allegation. Um, so that's why I'm talking about all this stuff. Um, but, uh, yes, she put together a group of friends who were able and willing to travel to Washington with her um, to testify, although I want to put an asterisk by that because although it was announced on um, the Sunday before her September 27th testimony by Chuck Grassley, the majority... Um, Leader on the Senate Judiciary Committee, that there would be public testimony. She had not gotten her mind around that and was not necessarily planning to do that. So here she is on this private plane bound for Washington with half a dozen friends um, and thinking maybe she'll talk to senators individually or in a group in private. And it's really not until... The night before the September 27th hearing, which was a year ago this coming Friday, that she has a heart-to-heart with one of her advisors who says, look, you need to do this. Because if you don't do it in front of the whole world, the only people that will hear your account directly from you are the 21 senators who are on the Judiciary Committee. And all the other senators that need to cast a vote on Judge Kavanaugh will be you know, hearing things secondhand. So that's why you need to tell the whole world this, not just these 21 people. And that argument carries the day with her. You report that
2: during her testimony, the National Sexual Assault Hotline said calls jumped 147%. We carried the testimony live and during the breaks, we went on the air and opened the phone lines and it was so overwhelming because mostly older women called in and shared their stories for the first time ever, it just, the lines just lit up. You also report that Delaware Democrat Chris Coons said that his phone blew up in a way it never had before. He heard from people he'd known for decades, other people he never met before, talking about what happened, their their fathers, their brothers, their priests, their teachers.
0: Yeah, that was a a really striking thing was to kind of get behind the scenes with some of the senators who were being impacted by this as she testified. And even though there was clearly a heightened awareness around sexual misconduct in this country, this really hit home. And so it resonated with people. I mean, people really kind of talk about her as the apotheosis of this, this Me Too moment. And It just brought so many people out of the woodwork in terms of saying, you know, that happened to me too, or I know someone who it happened to, and you've made me feel less alone, and your coming forward is brave. And I think it also, frankly, shook a lot of these uh, legislators who were kind of hearing this searing testimony in a very visceral way, and it was making a strong impact on them, as well as their constituents. I mean, so many of them had their phones ringing off the hook. So many of them started getting emails and calls that made them realize this is something we need to be taking seriously. This is something we need to pay attention to. And then the next
2: day we had judge Kavanaugh testifying now, judge Kavanaugh, justice Kavanaugh, I should say. I was looking forward to reading your book to learn more about his tone that day. And um, a lot of people were so shocked by that, but you almost felt like he was coming out of the TV screen. It was that intense. So before testifying, you write about the time he went on fox and trump was very disappointed because he had a very muted demeanor
0: so do you have any sense of what the trump team said to him before we do testified? actually i mean i think that Probably the the Fox appearance was more of the kind of usual Brett Kavanaugh, where it was extremely muted, it was controlled. He said, I just want a fair process about 11 times. He sort of had his talking points. He kept reiterating them. It was was very rehearsed. We actually had one GOP aide saying it looked like a a hostage interview because (laughs) um, it was so stilted and the curtains were drawn and... um, but I think that, you know, he the, the word got back to him that, you know, Trump wasn't happy with this performance because that's, you know, not the Trump playbook, which is to kind of fight back and fight back hard. Um, and and so Kavanaugh, um, when it came time for him to testify, which was actually the same day as Blasey Ford, amazingly. And, and what I think back on in, in terms of just watching that day was, you know, there was so much on Twitter around, you know, he's finished, he's toast. You know, how could anyone survive testimony like that? Um, and then, sure enough, Brett Kavanaugh came out there and turned it around um, with the help of, you know, some of those senators. Um, but one of the sort of great details is that, you know, when he was coming out, there was actually um, one of the uh, re- Republican um, Senate aides said, you know, you have to come out swinging. And also we know that um, partly from our colleague Carl Hulse's book that Don McGahn, the White House counsel, said, you know, you have to show them how you feel. And that sense of him feeling outraged and indignant and that, you know, his professional and personal reputation was
3: on the line, that he, that needed to be conveyed. And so that's what we got. And you know what's amazing? I, the Christine Blasey Ford testimony was so searing and so gut-wrenching to many people, if not almost everyone, um, and at the same time, McGahn and other supporters of, of Judge Kavanaugh were saying to one another and to the president, it's only halftime. Just wait a while. And there were Republicans right after Justice Kavanaugh's testimony who were thrilled and thought he did a great job beating back these allegations, defending his character that America needed to see some anger and some indignance here, given what was being levied at him. I think what's also so fascinating was how it
0: resonates with the Clarence Thomas hearings, which was actually the same kind of playbook where, you know, people have often referred to the high-tech lynching uh, line of when, you know, Clarence Thomas turned it to him being a victim. That actually was incredibly compelling, and that's what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings. Kavanaugh became the one who was under attack, and um, and you had Lindsey Graham, you know, sort of screaming to the country that this man is, you know, done wrong. This is a really hard question
2: to answer, but do you think this experience will affect Kavanaugh's decisions?
3: We have the sense that it will. Um, People who know him tell us that he is a person who's very concerned about his legacy and even more so in the wake of everything that happened last year that, um, and this is our observation as well, he's less ideological and a little bit more pragmatic as a jurist than people realize this, this is actually his history and that he may very well be even more deliberate now Than he would have been had these allegations never come up, had his confirmation never been threatened, and we've seen a mixed picture picture during his first term on the court. So I mentioned uh, June Medical versus Gee and his um taking a, a somewhat predictable conservative position on the Louisiana abortion clinics. At the same time, there have been some surprises. Um he, for example, uh allowed was was part of the coalition of of justices who allowed an antitrust case against Apple to go forward. He also wrote the majority opinion in a case called Flowers versus Mississippi uh, that dealt with um a black man who's been on death row in Mississippi for more than 20 years um, for a quadruple murder that um, evidence suggests he was actually framed for by a white DA. And he's been tried six times for this by either all-white or predominantly white juries. And essentially, Justice Kavanaugh found that the jury selection in the sixth trial was racially motivated Um, And it it was dismissed. By the way, there's a podcast on this called In the Dark that is incredible if you haven't listened to it. Um, But that's a position that might surprise some uh, for Justice Kavanaugh to take and not just to be uh, of the opinion that the, the, the peremptory strikes on the jury were racially motivated, but also to write the majority opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, you asked about things that were
0: surprising, and one of them was looking back at his jurisprudence of over 12 years on the court on the D.C. Circuit, which was also kind of got short shrift and wasn't much discussed during the confirmation process. And we found that that was sort of mixed. Um, there were some sort of predictably conservative positions that he took, but there was also, for example, one case in which he argued that battered wife syndrome needed to play a role in decision-making, that you know the fact that a woman stayed and didn't leave, you had to take into account what battered woman syndrome was, which was that she felt like she couldn't leave. So there were some kind of, you know, there was more nuance to those as well. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program.
2: Let's spend a little bit of time talking about Deborah Ramirez, one of Kavanaugh's classmates, who had a very different experience from Dr. Ford. And that part of the book was in the piece that ran in the New York times recently, and it brings up so many issues around class and privilege and race. So since you spent some time with Deborah Ramirez, can you briefly remind us who she is?
0: So, Deborah Ramirez was a classmate uh, um, of Brett Kavanaugh's and mine. Uh, She um, attended a freshman year dorm party where everybody was drinking. In particular, there was a drinking game where um, there was a a bunch of guys and her. And they kept sort of targeting her to, like, drink Debbie drink. And she did. And she, uh, her background is that she hadn't had much experience, if any, with alcohol. She also was sexually inexperienced. Um, and at one point, a fake penis was put in her face, and she was thrown and embarrassed. and the next thing, next time that there was a penis put in her face, she swatted it away, thinking it was the fake one, and it turned out to be real. Um, this was uh, incredibly upsetting to her. She had never plan- not planned to touch um, a man's genitals until she was married. Um, she remembers looking up and seeing Brett Kavanaugh pulling up his pants and laughing. And these friends laughing, um, at her for having kind of been sort of, sort of duped into thinking this was fake and she was sort of the butt of the joke. And then somebody yelling down the hall, Debbie, um, Brett just put his penis in Debbie's face. So that was her memory. It was first reported in the New Yorker, um, and some of the problems around that was that she wanted to check um, whether she had told any of her friends at the time, because she didn't remember telling them, and uh, she was that was later used against her as if she was trying to construct a memory that actually was, she was trying to confirm. But the experience was so formative, and what was interesting in talking to her about it was starting to understand why it made such an impact, why it lasted all these years, and you know, she explored just this idea that, you know, she has never said anything good about college as a result of this. I mean, she had been raised in in a working class, Shelton, Connecticut. Her father um, was a cable splicer. She has, he was, he's Puerto Rican, so she has partly Puerto Rican background. They sort of had a very simple economic, economically sort of middle class life, lower middle class. She had to kind of work at Carvel in the summers. She, her parents took out loans to send her to Yale and she did work study there, so she served Served food in the dining halls. Um, she cleaned dorm rooms for the reunions, and so and she was also kind of. There were those kind of casual cracks about, you know, how'd you get in here? Is it because you were Puerto Rican? Kind of commenting on the clothes she wore. Now I. You know, I was one of those people like Brett Kavanaugh who came. I was raised in New York City. I went to a private school. So, coming into a place like Yale, um, knowing how to navigate a situation like that was, you know, I'm not saying I wasn't one of those people who had an easier time. But talking to Debbie has made me more sensitive to this idea of a theme that endures to this day that some people come in there um, really at a disadvantage in terms of kind of just knowing the lay of the land and a certain level of sophistication and resilience. And that really made her um, very vulnerable in that situation in a way that was just, you know, frankly, hugely humiliating and upsetting.
2: It was so interesting to read about how she really disconnected from that life because of everything you just mentioned. And then after her story went public, classmates started supporting her and she became really proud of who she is. In fact, I think it was for the New Yorker. Or the New York Times when
0: she was photographed and she has a shirt that said Puerto Rican and she wanted all of her to be in that photograph. Yeah, I mean she really got in touch with her sort of identity politics in part because of the world we're living in now where that is so much more part of the conversation, which it was not at the time. And she didn't really have an awareness of that. At, at the time. So she, there was a lot of kind of self blame and shame surrounding these issues. And then as she became an adult, she got involved with kind of representing victims and working for a nonprofit and sort of had her awareness heightened. And it made her sort of really sort of be much more strong in this regard. And, and actually, then you now have these kind of, there was a big letter by Yale women, there was a letter from Yale men, and, and I think she is feeling, um, much more sort of proud about her heritage and her background.
3: This is actually one of the few silver linings of this whole saga is is how Ramirez feels now. Can you just speak for a moment about the poem?
0: Yeah, I mean, she talks about, there's this poem, she got a, a flood of letters and emails, as Blasi Ford did too, and she s- has saved them all, and she goes back to them, and one of them is about this poem called What is Justice? And it made her think about what is justice in this, and she said, and I think people forget that Deborah Ramirez didn't want to, she, she didn't initiate coming forward. She got a call from Ronan Farrow, a reporter at The New Yorker, who had heard about this story. Um, and what was fascinating about that call was he said, I'm, I'm calling about sexual misconduct that, about Brett Kavanaugh at Yale. And she says, I don't know anything about that. And he said, I'm talking about when he exposed himself to you at a party. And she said, oh, that. So she hadn't even thought of it as sexual misconduct at the time. Um, and so, but this poem, What is Justice, made her say that, you know, there's a lot of good that did come out of this in terms of the conversation and the degree to which these two women contributed to it.
2: You report that at least five people have a strong recollection of hearing about this incident with Ramirez long before Kavanaugh was a federal judge. And then her mom also recalls being told about it by her daughter without specifics
0: during college. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed her mother, and and she had never spoken before about this and had been reluctant to. But what she remembers is a remarkable memory of sitting across Debbie on a visit to Yale and Debbie crying so hysterically that her mother thought she'd been raped. And Debbie's mother said to her, do you want me to go to the Yale authorities? And Deborah said, don't. And, but all that Debbie told her at the time was something happened at Yale. She did not tell her what it was. And, and her mother didn't learn the details until Brett Kavanaugh had been named as uh, the nominee for the court.
2: Debbie's story made its way to the FBI, but she was never investigated, right? Go ahead.
3: Yeah. Well, you should take this. But the the quick answer is she was interviewed by the FBI, and Robin can say more about that. But her lawyers put together a list of other potential witnesses who might have either corroborating information or additional details about this account, and they were never followed up with.
0: Yes, Deborah Ramirez's lawyers gave them a list of about 25 people. Um, you know, how much information they had that would have been ultimately relevant isn't entirely clear, but these were people who did feel that they had information that should be, um, that the FBI should pay attention to. Um, what's interesting about the Deborah Ramirez story is that it was circulating. Um, senators were talking about it, hearing about it. Um, there's even one classmate who believes that, that, um, Brett Kavanaugh was trying to preempt it, that he had a sense it was going to come out. And we, we talk about this in the book and was trying to make sure that friends, um, didn't allude to it or let it leak in some way.
3: It's worth saying as well, there was sort of a parallel situation with Dr. Ford in the sense that, um, she was never interviewed by the FBI. Brett Kavanaugh was never actually interviewed by the FBI. They both... Uh, well, Dr. Ford answered quite a few questions at the Senate. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh answered a number and evaded some. Dr. Ford had some additional materials she wanted to share with agents, including some medical records that she wasn't comfortable sharing with the Senate. But uh, her lawyers also put together a list of uh, additional um, sources dozen or so. Well, yeah, there were, I think there were 13 people that were actually named and scores more that were referenced, like sort of all the people that were at this event or all the people mentioned in this article. And some of them were spoken to, but the vast majority of them were not. And there was this moment that if, if the stakes weren't so high and it weren't so serious, it's almost comical, um, in our book in which, uh, Christine Blasey Ford's lawyers are trying on the Friday night that the FBI investigation is, Uh, Called for to reach Director Ray at the FBI or his deputy to give this letter over and make some suggestions, and their their emails are bouncing back. They can't get the correct phone number. Um, You know, they're calling like a 24-hour hotline, and finally, uh, one of her lawyers does get through to a senior person, Um, but it's. There's not a formal process, and it's clear from our reporting that the FBI was not waiting for these incoming calls or necessarily wanting to take them. But also to your point, Rose, about Ramirez talking to the FBI, we
0: have this kind of interesting scene in which she was interviewed by two FBI agents in her lawyer's office in Boulder, Colorado, and how at the conclusion of the interview they said, we find you credible, and um, at the same time, they indicated that they could only do as much as they were sort of authorized to do, which was limited at the time, and they were even, uh, one of her lawyers said, a little apologetic about it.
2: And quickly, can you tell us how this FBI investigation came together? You have some interesting back and forth between uh, Democratic Senator Chris Coons and Republican Senator Jeff Flake. And, and Senator Coons thought that Flake was going to vote against Kavanaugh and was shocked to learn that he probably would vote for him.
3: Right. He Coons finds that out on the Friday morning from some reporters, and he, he sort of gets into um, a very emotional state. But yes, so... Um, there's this pivotal day in which Senators Coons and Flake agree on a bipartisan basis that they're going to call for this FBI investigation, that it will be limited in scope, but they get together with some other moderate Republicans and they kind of brainstorm a list of potential witnesses that is in the double digits. And then the Republicans go off and meet with the Senate majority leader um, and talk more about it without Senator Coons. And ultimately, and this is, uh, again, a scene in our book that's really, re- really remarkable, um, you have Senator, Senator Coons calling Don McGahn on a cell phone on the Sunday, three, three days White House later, Council. right. And McGann is like taking his kid to baseball practice and Coons is saying, what's going on with this process? And McGann is saying, it's being done by the book. And Coons says, what book? Can I see the book? And McGann ultimately says, well, there's not actually a book, but you know, it's all being done according to Hoyle. And you know, he's, he's trying to reassure Coons, but with no specifics. And of course, Coons is really never brought into the tent.
0: We also have these kind of interesting moment of obviously that moment in the elevator with Flake, um, which was so um, intense and, and obviously made a real impact on him. Where sexual assault survivors confront him and ask him to consider blocking Kavanaugh. Right. And so then he goes back into the hearing room, sort of unsettled, and Coons was sort of equally unsettled. Coons talked to us about how he delivered his remarks specifically so for, for, to influence Flake. So that's just sort of seeing how the two of them really were sort of the moving force behind at least putting the brakes on this nomination for a week.
2: So Senator Coons is quoted as saying, I concluded that there was no book. There was no tightly defined process. So the terms were dictated by the White House. Mm -hmm. Given that Democrats sent the Bureau a list of two dozen suggested witnesses, Ramirez's team gave the FBI a list of at least 25 individuals. You talked to a few people who said they just called an 800 number and had no idea what to do from there. Did you talk to anyone about what could have happened if this was a fair process and the FBI did follow these leads?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think the feeling was, like certainly with the Ramirez story, for example, when you're reporting on um, issues of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, you know, what you actually do and and we, we do as reporters is you try to find people who were told about this contemporaneously. That is how you help validate a story. And in the case of Deborah Ramirez, you know, in addition to her mother, there were two classmates who had heard about it shortly thereafter. If there was a, a woman she had told right after college who signed an affidavit to that to that effect saying, Deborah Ramirez told me about this, that's the kind of evidence that would have lent credence to her story at a time when it was largely dismissed, for example. Had this been sort of been more thoughtfully done with more time, um, perhaps those allegations you know would have um, just become more substantiated and had an impact.
3: Right. And like the medical references, the uh, medical records that Dr. Ford had that I referenced included therapy notes um, affirming the fact that she had talked in therapy about this alleged assault from years ago. Um, I mean, it's, it's worth noting that as Judge Kavanaugh pointed out and Joe Biden pointed out years ago, the FBI typically in these background investigations does not reach conclusions, but they can do more canvassing and research than they were able to do in this case, and they can put together reports and summary reports that allow uh, the reader to raise additional questions, make a more informed decision, take an informed next step. In a way, we're clearly not the FBI, and we don't have subpoena power. But we tried to sort of make some of those calls that weren't made, have some of those conversations that weren't had, and share with our readers what the outcome was. If people spoke to us or if they didn't, if they had something to say, what was it? And then at the very end, we try to sort of weigh it all together um, and without taking a strong opinion, at least sort of analyze for the reader what we think happened to the best of our ability. But I think it's also important
0: to note that, you know, if we try to take this from Brett Kavanaugh's perspective, he had been vetted. Um, many times before he had filled out many questionnaires he'd gone through FBI background checks suddenly there's this 11th hour allegation that threatens to derail you know the, what he's been working his whole life towards you can understand those conspiracy theories they had about you know why these allegations happened when they did um, and also frankly the Republicans were very eager to sort of see this nomination through and they wanted it done before the midterm elections they wanted it done by the next court session and they did didn't want this to drag on indefinitely. So they had a real interest in fast tracking it.
2: Dr. Ford passed a polygraph test focused on her memories of what happened with Kavanaugh last August. And did that get much attention at the time? I I just don't remember.
3: It it was raised uh, on September 27th at the hearings. And interestingly, the question of polygraphs were raised in a sort of oblique way that appeared like an attempt to harm her credibility. There was this whole storyline about how she had talked to a roommate back in graduate school in Malibu about polygraphs. To us, that was not relevant to what we were trying to do here. She did take this polygraph test. It was administered um, in August, as you said. She passed the polygraph test. The former FBI agent who conducted it, a guy named Jeremiah Hannafin, attested to all of these things in a document that you can find on the Senate Judiciary Committee website. Polygraphs are have issues, but it is yet another attestation of her um, allegations and the consistency with which she has described them and reaffirmed them, especially in recent years, uh, to friends, family, a therapist, and so on.
2: Can you briefly talk about what lawyer Max Steyer told you? He said that he
0: saw Kavanaugh with his pants down at a different party. Exactly. And and this was a new revelation in our book. It it had been circulating at the time. It was never, it never surfaced publicly. Um, but it was clearly meaningful in light of having, um, added substantial, echoing the Deborah Ramirez experience in, in so many ways. It was another dorm party, freshman year, a lot of drinking. Um, and, and in what made it sort of remarkable was, This was a person who's saying he actually had seen this. Um, And so it, it wasn't even a matter of just corroborating people who'd heard about it. This was someone who actually said he saw it with his own eyes. And um, he had brought it to the attention, more importantly, of several senators as well as the FBI. He had the interest in having that information inform the, the process of evaluating the fitness of uh, Judge Kavanaugh. It was never pursued. And Max Dyer has chosen, therefore, not to discuss it publicly, having sort of felt like he did his duty and he um, his work was done.
3: And we should make the disclaimer that the woman in this case, there's, we don't have a lot of detail about this in its incident, but the detail and the context that we do have is in the book. The, the woman uh, who was involved in this incident, has told third parties that she doesn't recall it. She did talk to us for the book, but not about this particular issue. She did not want to talk about that. Right. She would only give us a
0: statement about she was a close friend of Debbie Ramirez, and um, she wanted to attest to her veracity. Um, But yes, her friends say she doesn't remember it.
3: One final note on that is that um, since her name has emerged through our book, uh, a television reporter spoke briefly to her recently, and uh, when asked about this incident, she said, if you have questions about it, ask Brett.
2: Well, since that article ran in the New York Times and this new piece of information came out, six Democratic presidential candidates said that
0: Justice Kavanaugh should be impeached. Do you have any updates on that? We don't have updates on it um, you know. and as much as we're glad that our book has become part of the conversation we also think it speaks to this idea that um, even this was before the book was released that this was happening it was based on our excerpt that it sort of speaks to the climate we're living in of people to some extent on both sides of the aisle capitalizing on various aspects of this story that kind of serve their political agendas um, and, their, and their goals. Um, you know, People can do what they want with these facts. But I think one of the things we really wanted to do was go back at at this story in a way that was just kind of trying to learn everything we possibly could about it um, without an investment in the outcome. You write toward the end of the book, as people, our gut
2: reaction was that the allegations of Ford and Ramirez from the past rang true. As reporters, we uncovered nothing to suggest that Kavanaugh has mistreated women in the years since. And this just raises an important question that you bring up in the beginning, and that is, based on the reporting you did, their allegations ring true. And if it happened then, and then as the years went by, it didn't happen again, it's for the people to decide whether or not that person should be a Supreme Court justice.
3: I think that's right. And and we have studiously avoided opining on whether last year's outcome was correct or what action should be taken now, if any. Um, there are lots of arguments around the issue you just mentioned. I'll pick two just to kind of lay out two interesting ones. Um on the sort of side of this should not be relevant, you could consider the juvenile justice system in our country, which uh, generally speaking keeps confidential um, police reports, crimes, and proceedings related to um, people when they're minors. And the whole philosophy there is to make sure that the misjudgments and errors of one's younger years don't haunt them in later life, especially if they go on to have a better character and refrain from crime now. In this case, uh, with with uh, Ford and Ramirez, Kavanaugh would have been probably 17 and 18, so the argument doesn't fully work once he's 18, but but that's there, there's a certain philosophy there. On the other side of it, you have people who would say, look, if this type of sexual misconduct is in a person's character at 17 and 18, it's always in their character, and nobody is entitled to be on the Supreme Court. Um, so... It, if you've behaved like this, doesn't matter how long ago it was, you're unfit. Um, And those are two of the the arguments that we've heard frequently, but there are many valid ones, and uh, we just feel like it's not for us to decide.
2: Anything to add?
3: just i mean i think that this question of whether or not
0: um you know people have sometimes said what if someone did reform their ways and what and do, do we give people second chances and and i think those are some of the questions we actually really wanted to wrestle with and raise um because that there is this sense of now you know whatever you do when you're young can haunt you and kind sort of impact you for the rest of your life and um and just that that whole sense of whether it is possible um that he did evolve in a certain way. And I think that that that's, gets to this point of, you know, some people have said to us, if he had only f- sort of taken a more human um, sort of empathic mm-hmm. stance instead of what you were describing, which was so incredibly aggressive on that last day, if there had been some sense of, you know, uh, I feel terrible. This woman went through what she did. And, I, and there were a lot of things I did when I was young that I regret and I'm not proud of. Um, but I've really made a studious effort, um, to kind of improve my conduct in adulthood, then perhaps people would have been a little more forgiving. On the other hand, there are those who say that in the Trump era, um, there is no room for a gray, and, uh, he would never have been, have made it onto the court had he taken that tack. Mm.
2: Well, thank you so much. Now we have 15 minutes for Q&A, so please raise your hand and be sure to ask a question. And just raise your hand high, and we're going to bring a micro. There we go, back there.
1: I am still grappling
0: with the fact that Mike Judge was never brought in to testify. He was allegedly there. Not Mike Judge, Mark, Mark Judge. Yeah. Excuse me. He was not brought in to testify. How did? Do you have insider information as to how he was able to get out of that? since he was allegedly the only one in the room at the time.
3: I think it's a simple case of there was a lack of political will. I mean, the Senate decided not to subpoena him. Um, He was interviewed by the FBI, uh, and from what I understand, it it went on for hours. Uh, He consistently has said that he does not recall this event, um, and that is also what we gathered during our reporting process, is that he does not remember this event. Now, having said that, there are plenty of questions one might have for him about social life in those days and the character of Brett Kavanaugh and Kavanaugh's treatment of women and any incidents that judge might've witnessed and whether he knew Dr. Ford and so on and so forth. Um, but unfortunately, um, I was only able to talk to him briefly and not to get answers to all of those things. And, uh, there, while there was no doubt, um, some, F- some time spent on this in the FBI report that was generated a year ago. Uh, all that is confidential. One of the
0: things I would add to that is this issue of memory that was fascinating to us, which is in talking to sexual assault experts, is that you know for people for whom these events were not meaningful, they don't remember them. So perhaps this was an event that didn't make an impact on him, whereas for someone who for whom it was hugely traumatic, you know they never forget it. Uh, So not remembering doesn't necessarily uh, mean as much as some people
1: uh, ascribe it to. Uh, I don't remember Ramirez testifying. Did she testify? She didn't, no. No. Uh, What I was wondering is these things you found with Ramirez and the witnesses associated with the person that did testify, why didn't reporters find them during a confirmation hearing? I mean, I know it takes time, but... You know, I mean, such things recently as the... uh Whistleblower. It seems that the reporters are all over it.
0: Yeah, we were. We were all over trying to find get Ramirez to talk at the time. She decided to only just because she was so besieged, as was Christine Blasey Ford. She decided to only speak to the New Yorker at the time and accepted no other calls. And so we had to kind of report around her. And then, given the time that we had, um, we had it was sort of limited success in terms of fleshing out her story at the time.
3: And we can tell you also that as reporters that worked on this story last year for The Times, we were either trying to or were talking to some of those people on those lists. So um, to the best of our knowledge, we were following every lead. But
1: why weren't those people
3: testifying? I mean, the Senate was in charge and the Senate
0: Judiciary Committee, the Republicans, it's a Senate, it's Republican controlled, and they wanted to limit how many people they heard from.
3: You talk a lot about the um, male senators, but what about Susan Collins and being a woman and, wow. Um, Yeah, I mean, that that was a galvanizing moment for many people, Um, and um, Senator Collins was part of the group with Flake and Coons that advocated for the extended FBI investigation, but of course, she also came out in favor of Kavanaugh and delivered this 45-minute speech, essentially in his defense, that uh, a lot of people... Um, found, you know, resonant and powerful and upsetting, depending on their point of view. What's interesting is um, some of these positions had um, strong impact on midterm elections. So you saw Democrats who had opposed Kavanaugh, people like Heidi Heitkamp, Claire McCaskill, Joe Donnelly, lose their Senate seats. Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia who supported Kavanaugh, kept his seat. Now, Senator Collins is being challenged in 2020 in Maine, and although the polls are still very much in her favor, her favorability rating has sunk a little bit, and there's uh, a lot of talk about whether or not the Kavanaugh vote will come back to haunt her. But it's early to say, and, and to be fair, the polls are very much in her favor.
1: You know, the uh, the New York Times didn't do you any favors uh, in a few of the, the misjudgments that were made about running your article, putting it online, et cetera. And I'm just curious, you, you would think that the Times would have a little red light that would go off when these kind of articles about Trump or things related to Trump, where you know any any kind of slip-up is going to be magnified a thousand times, be fuel for all sorts of – Crap to distract from the true story. Is there is there sort of heightened scrutiny about some of these articles, and how do how how do these errors slip through?
0: I mean, definitely, this is a place that we are on on high alert about um, kind of the assumptions that are made and and the time we're living in when the press is under attack and being very careful. Um, that said, you know these are human beings putting out a newspaper with two hundred and fifty URLs a day now, um, and Stuff happens, and this was one of them, unfortunately. And, and I think it's also important to note that the line that was taken out of our piece, um, it was a well-intentioned, um, effort by the editor to not name, um, the victim of this new allegation. And unfortunately, that sentence also included, um, the point about the fact that her friends say she doesn't remember it. So all sorts of motives were, um, assigned to it when, in fact, um, you know, the Times has a history of not necessarily naming somebody who's the victim of something. And when the Times realized it, they put it back in and they ran an editor's note. Um, but it is kind of a blood sport right now.
3: Yeah, you make a very good point. and And I think our experience in in seeing our work criticized over this issue Robin was talking about is emblematic of the times that we're in. Um, there's this sort of shoot the messenger mentality, and it's really a deflection from the facts that we're trying to bring to light, the conversation that we are trying to continue about all the unfinished business from last year, and the feelings both for and against Justice Kavanaugh, the questions of whether the women last year got a fair record. Um, and that's what we really want to talk about because we think that we have this pretty nuanced book with a lot of interesting new facts and disclosures. And in the public realm, there's just a fear or a, a, a hesitance in some quarters to go there. And it's much easier to just dis- dismiss the quality of the work for one reason or another.
1: Hi. I, um, when I heard your talk was about the education of Brett Kavanaugh, where my mind goes or went immediately was the culture that he grew up in, at Yale, but also in high school, and I thought you were going to address, you know, how that's changed or not changed or where it's headed. So it's not your fault that I was thinking along those lines. That's that's where I come from. I'm an anthropologist, so I think about culture. So my question for you is: Is the Me Too movement making a difference? Is it real? Is it pushing thing? Is it pushing our thinking in a direction that um, will affect the political? Landscape, and and how is it making a difference? At
3: the high school level, or in general? <laughs> I think Me Too is absolutely making a difference. I mean, um, Robin and I have both done stories on Me Too um, on our beats, which are culture and business, respectively. And these are not stories that probably would have been brought to us uh, by the participants more than two years ago, uh, not very easily. I don't know that they would be a focus of the culture. Um, I, I do think there's a desire to examine these behaviors, these entrenched behaviors that are damaging to, uh, women, but also men in some cases and kind of, uh, perpetuate the inequality and the lack of opportunities. Um, so, uh, We do think that Me Too is making a huge difference, and there's certainly talk about it when you talk to people about Brett Kavanaugh's high school and what's going on there. Um, I haven't done a ton of reporting on what Georgetown Prep is doing to respond to any of this, if anything. Um, but I know among those in Washington that I talk to who still live there and maybe are alumni of the school or, Um, you know, grew up, I went to one of those uh, single sex schools. My school was called National Cathedral School in DC. So in my broader community, there's a lot of talk about character and character education and um, being sensitive to others and being aware of this kind of terrible legacy of, of sexual misconduct.
0: I think you also see young people are much more empowered and aware now in a, in a very different way of kind of what is acceptable and not acceptable and that they they have a voice and their voices deserve to be heard. Um, so many of the Me Too stories that I've done for the Times, you know, I, I have a sense that the women I'm talking to know that the wind is at their back now in a way that it certainly didn't used to be. And so the fear of coming forward is is somewhat lessened. And in the case of, Bl- of Blasey Ford, I thought, you know, comparing it to the Anita Hill hearings, I thought it was interesting that they at least knew they couldn't have this panel of white male Republican senators questioning her, that at least in terms of the optics, they had to have a female um, pers- interlocutor, even though ultimately the Republicans dispatched with her. Um, at least they, they were aware that they needed to treat this m- ostensibly more sensibly. Could,
3: could I add um, one quick thing? I always like to bring this up, but I don't have the statistics memorized. Um, there was, a, there was a, a study done late last year about the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, and the results were kind of interesting. Um, uh, this was conducted by a, an outfit called Perry Undum in the Washington area. of those polled had a largely unfavorable impression of Brett Kavanaugh as compared with 29% who had a favorable one. 35% said the Senate did the right thing, confirming him. 41% disagreed. Now, as a contrast, during the Clarence Thomas hearings, 58% of Americans supported him, with 30% opposed. And lastly, uh, 55% of voters believed Ford over Kavanaugh. That's a 16-point margin.
2: My question had to do with process. And the process is the thing I'm most concerned about. I think, and, and thank you for bringing that up right now before I even ask my question, but I feel the process is not neutral. And that's my biggest concern. What can we as a democracy or a voting community do to affect the process in this? I'm very concerned. I have grandchildren. I am a 30-year resident here. I
0: have been a Berkeley professor. I want to know about process. Thank Uh, you. I think that I mean, it's a it's a question that definitely came up in in our reporting for this book because um, there was a sense that, you know, in terms of who are the victims here, um, that the process is a victim, that the country is a victim, as well as obviously these individuals who participated, that this is ultimately mm-hmm. s- seems very broken. Um, because people had their minds made up before um, any facts were known, because uh, everyone is so aligned on on politically um, that minds are not open. And and I, I do think that, you know, in looking back at this story, we see how it's... Sort of dates back to the Bork hearings, um, and this, and then this. You have the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas episode, and you have this Merrick Garland not even getting a hearing, and there's almost this kind of retaliatory behavior that's happening with no regard for actually evaluating these judges and, and what they're going to be like on the court. And so, I think what people can do is try to really kind of demand that of their representatives in terms of um, actually trying to get back to the substance.
3: And as a, as an addition to that, I would just say some have called in, in the wake of the publication of our book for an investigation of the process. Uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse wrote, wrote an op-ed to that effect. Uh, there's a conservative blogger at the Washington Post, Jennifer Rubin, who's argued for that. And that's an interesting notion because if there were an assessment of the process done by the government, hopefully, Uh, It would provide some additional insight into what went right, what went wrong, all in the service of making this fair and thorough for all nominees, regardless of who's in office when they're nominated.
1: I'm going to jump in. Uh, Rose, thank you for asking some really great questions and helping flesh out this new book. Thank you all so much for coming tonight and for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you.